This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. I want to see some of you all run up to the stage to hear the the sermon. That'd be cool. It's good to be with you all. Let's go ahead and pray and uh, ready ourselves even more for the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for our children. Thank you for each and every one of them, Lord. Lord, we pray that they come to a saving faith, Lord, to a knowledge of you, Lord, to a, a deep love of you. We pray that you would inspire and enable our teachers to uh, speak your word to them, Lord, in a way that they understand, Lord, so that those, uh, those seeds, Lord, are planted, Lord. And, Lord, we know that you know what to do with those, Lord. So we pray that you would keep them and bless them this morning. Lord, similarly, as we look at the scriptures this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. But in, um, in a more intimate way, that you would just speak to us, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. We know that you have spoken through the prophets and your disciples, and we thank you for the opportunity we get to hear from you directly, Lord. I pray that you would um, help us to focus, help us. I know there's so many things going on in all of our lives and in the world as well, and I pray, Lord, you would just help us focus and to concentrate uh, on this special time to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. What comes to your mind when you think of grace, grace, unmerited favor, unearned favor? I try to think about like what would be the ultimate, what would be the ultimate thing that would need to happen to me for me to show like such amazing, like superpower grace. And I think what it would be is if one of my children became a Packers fan. If they became a Green Bay Packers fan. For those of you who don't know, if you're born in Chicago, you're supposed to love the Bears, even, even though we, you know, it's tough sometimes. But then you're also supposed to not like the Packers. Notice I didn't say the H word because we're in church. But you're not supposed to like the Packers at all. So I was thinking, what would happen? What would need to happen? I'd have to have so much grace to just keep feeding them and letting them sleep over and paying off some things for them. That'd be really hard. I would need some big time grace for sure. But seriously though, as a believer and benefactor or being I'm a beneficiary of God's grace, the first thing that I really think about when I think about grace is the song, right? Amazing Grace. 1748, this song was written. And this is a song that's just been such a great testament of Christian theology. It's something that just really speaks to the heart of grace and what we believe. Listen to these lyrics. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that all of our testimony? Each one has like your testimony. And the guy who wrote this, Newton, he was a former slave trader, and he got to see God rescue them and take care of them, and he looks back at who he was and how he acted. And then he became an abolitionist. He actually totally changed, 180. 
It also says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." Anyone remember when you first became a believer? That moment, that time. Some of us, it was like huge. It was a big thing. I remember my mom, who had went through so much in her lifetime when she became a believer, she just couldn't stop talking about it. And she actually got mad at me because she was like, you've been a believer for all these years. You don't talk about it as much as I. You know, she immediately was saying I needed, I needed to show more vigor in my relationship with the Lord, right, which is awesome. Amen to people who just become Christians, huh? It also says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh, that speaks of heaven. And then lastly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was blind, but now I see. Today we're going to be talking about sola gratia, or, or grace alone. And the idea here is that salvation solely comes on behalf of God's grace. God does the work. Salvation is entirely credited to the gracious mercy of God distributed to whoever God pleases. So today, we're going to search the scriptures to examine, and almost like what I was hoping to do in this sermon is kind of yell at us about how amazing God's grace is. But in order to get to how great God's grace is, there's something we need to talk about first, and that's going to talk about our, we're going to have to talk about our sin. So consider that grace alone has origins in this idea of after darkness, light. That phrase actually kind of means after darkness. So grace isn't amazing if the sin is light. So the, the sin has to be, uh, darkness is a great word to call it. So there's a darkness that we all came to before we, know, before we knew God's grace. So we're going to search the scriptures for this. Let's turn to Romans 3. Romans 3. Good News Bible Church, we read out of the English Standard Version. Here we go. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes. This is a tough passage. The Bible is clear. Everyone is under sin. Even the Jews, God's chosen people. Both God's chosen people and everyone are under sin. All have fallen short. All have missed the mark. All have failed the test. And all are simply 
nowhere near perfect. And how does Paul emphasize this? And remember that everything Paul is emphasizing here is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God's word is inspired by God as he moved people along. He uses this wording, none, no, not one. So in this language, you know, the idea of a double negative making a positive, that's not here. It, a double negative here or a triple negative is to emphasize, to deepen, like no one, nobody, never, ever, you know, when you used to argue as a kid and compare things and someone would just keep going like ever, 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 you know, they just kind of become annoying with that. That's the idea here. It's, a, it's, it's the furthest stretch to say, no, no way, not even. This repetition is meant to solidify this idea. And this is Jews and non-Jews. Everybody is not righteous, unrighteous. Everyone is not right. And what is the standard? Anyone know what's the standard in terms of being right or not right? Holiness. And, and God gave ten commandments among other commandments later to come. But he gave 10 commandments to Moses that are the standard to show whether someone is holy or set apart or not of sin and those who are. So let's take the test. Let's look at one of them. It says, you shall not commit adultery. And then we know when, when, in the New Testament, we see that it doesn't just mean the actual physical act, but it also means the mental act of sexuality was outside of the person you are married to. So if you've, even, if, you've, if you've even thought one thing in that regard, if you've even thought it or if you've acted upon it, it doesn't mean that you sin. What it means is you're an adulterer. So you sin, but then you, you in a sense, part of what that sin is is what you, what you are. You are a sinner. What kind of sinner in this case? An adulterer. What's another one? You shall not steal. Have you ever stolen one thing, even a little bit? I know some of you all so bad, you even stole something that was free. And then you find out later it was free. You're like, oh, I, I snuck it out for no reason. I used to steal so bad, I used to steal things that were free. My mom said, you live here, you can eat that. Like, oh, thanks, man. So stealing, taking something that is not yours and not of your possession. If you've even stolen one time, one cent, or even something that was free, you are what? You're a thief, and you missed the mark. Let's go with one more. How about you shall not steal? I'm sorry, I just said that. You shall not covet. Wrong word came to my mind. You shall not covet. We all have these deep emotions, these deep feelings. You think about idols. Think about idols or things that we've worshipped before, anything that we place before God, our own desires, our own wants. You can look at one of these questions, one of these, these Ten Commandments, you can look at all of them. We just looked at several, and it is clear to see that each one of us misses the mark. Each one of us sins. Not only do we all miss the mark, we don't even seek God. We don't even seek to understand God according to this passage. So we were dead and did not seek God or attempt to understand God, which makes sense. Because when you're dead, you don't do anything but act dead. And so, of course, in our deadness, 
spiritually, we wouldn't seek God. You see, some people, when it comes to sin, they're just like, I, you know, before they're believers, they just kind of say, well, I struggle with sin. And I tell people that who are, who are not believers, I say, well, without Christ, all you do is sin. Because even your intended good deeds are acting from a grave. They don't, spiritually, you're not alive. And so it doesn't, it doesn't take, it doesn't, it doesn't count. Scripture is clear. It says, instead, all have turned aside. They moved in the opposite direction. All are contrary to God because of sin. And this is when you can start playing the not even game. This is when in your brain, and when you talk to people that don't know Christ, this is where you play the not even game. You start to bring up the best person you ever known. You know, sometimes people will say, man, my mom, you could, my mom did this, this, and bring up all the great deeds. But according to the Ten Commandments, according to Scripture, without, without Jesus, without what happens with your sin being removed, even that person is dead in their sins. You could think of a famous person. Some people often bring up uh, someone who saved or helped many in a crisis, uh, maybe a war hero, uh, maybe someone who was a great leader, who definitely had some values and some morals. But without Christ, the Bible tells us that they still have sin, that they are dead in their sins. Let's look at verses 13 through 18 really quick. I'm just going to emphasize some things, and you should hear a pattern. The throat is an empty grave, the tongue to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The feet swift to shed blood. Paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. The fear of God before their eyes. This is like a game of spiritual head and shoulders, knees and toes. He's literally literally going through body parts explaining the sin problem, the sin nature of those before Christ. So there isn't this idea that there's people who are made righteous by Christ, and then there's people that are close to it. No, the Bible is clear. Without Christ, without God, without Jesus, there is no close to it. They are dead. Dead people are not close to being alive. They are dead. And spiritually, it's working the same way. And you can think about different actions they've done or different ways they have been. The Bible is clear. Over and over. We are through and through ungodly, apart away, apart from the work of Jesus. Some of us think about like the pursuit of holiness, or like how can we, how do people like get get holy, right? And one thing that we can say for certain is that we are not correct in our pursuit of holiness until we realize how much sin we have. That's, that's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to let people know that you're dead in your sins, and if you don't realize you're dead in your sins, you won't ask for a hero. You won't ask for a savior. So some of us, in our attempts to lead people to the Lord, we almost try to pull on their so-called goodness to show them how close they can be, and they just kind of need this extra hump over. And that's like the pursuit of holiness. Like, these people are close. We just need to get them over. You need to understand 
that a person that does not have a saving faith in Christ is dead in their sins. And that should cause you to pray. That should cause you to feel like I need to speak more. I need to be more honest with them, that they can't do it on their own. And Paul, who ends up starting a bunch of churches and is a great evangelist, what does he start with? Sin, sin, sin. You are a sinner. You are dead in your sins. Brings up the law. You are dead in your sins. You need a savior. People who think they're saved don't think they need a savior. Some people just think it, though, or they might believe it, or they believe because they were born in this country or born in, born in a church when they were little and went here for a while, went for a while, that they're okay. And we need to make sure that, just like the scripture says, that without God's grace, without Jesus' atoning sacrifice, dead in their sins. The law is broken. Authority has been disrespected. Now, sometimes when you hear this, it could almost kind of be depressing. Like when we're thinking about, like, just like, yo, this, we had a nice worship set. Like, what's going on, right? But I want to tell you all that there's a big point. There's a huge point. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand, wants his readers to understand that we are completely unable to save ourselves. We have no capacity to save ourselves. The fall, sin nature, has touched everyone in every way. He continues in verses 19 through 20. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law cannot save us from our sin and the penalty it deserves. Paul explains what's the purpose of the law. Why have the law? If the law can't save, what's the purpose of the law? Right away he says, the purpose is to stop every mouth. People can feel a certain way about their righteousness, but when they compare it to the law, the idea of the law is supposed to be a stop, stopping uh, device. It's supposed to stop their thinking of that so that they can repent. And we know the word repent means to change direction. So I'm thinking I'm doing the right things. I'm thinking I'm going to work my way to God. The law shows you that you are incapable of doing so. That's one of the first things that needs to happen for you to turn the other way. It is for us to know and for everyone to know and for everyone that has ever lived. What else is the purpose of the law? It exhibits how the whole world is accountable to God. Sometimes we hear verses like this and we apply them to everyone or a certain type of people. You're like, oh, that's, that's for somebody else. No, this sin issue is everyone's issue. It's everyone's issue. It's an issue that... You had before you came to Christ, and you understand that, and you should know that and realize everyone is affected by that. The law teaches us that. Paul's purpose here is that the whole world is accountable against a holy and perfect God. A holy and perfect God has, God has a standard, and he is altogether that standard. And if you don't reach that standard, you are not his. You are not his. Think about some Bible characters. Anyone have any Bible characters that come to mind when you think about, think about people in the Bible who try to, in a sense, save themselves? Let's start at the beginning. Who was at the beginning? Adam and Eve. 
possibly the closest relationship with God. We don't know how long they were in relationship with God before, before they sinned. It was, I mean, they were right there. We know that they walked with God, right? Closest relationship with God. Yet they broke God's commandment and hid. And then they also try to, like, cover themselves. They try to do something to hide their sin or cover themselves. They felt some type of way. So we can see, even if we can see the sin nature of mankind, we can see how we are, that even the people that were almost like in a close relationship with God did sin. And since then, it's been passed down. You think about Samson. Samson had all this power and ability, and he was not faithful to God, and God kept giving him chances and chances. And for a while, he seemed as he would, you know, kind of get away with it, or he would follow for a while, and he'd get away with this kind of two-faced living. However, God is always watching. And in the end, Samson paid a terrible price for breaking his vows and breaking and sinning. We got David. David was a man after God's own heart, but before God, well, David was a what? He was a great, he was great, a great sinner, a human being, such as all of us are capable of some amazing things with God's help, but without God. And at times, disobeying God was enticed by his flesh and committed huge sins, even things like murder. He expressed his repentance and the weight of his sin in the Psalms. If you read the Psalms and you hear David, you see he understands how much sin impacted him. And then you think about Peter, huge denial, huge lie, prideful. You think about Paul, before he came to Christ, agreed to the killing of Stephen, watched it, persecuted Christians. The law lets us know that we cannot justify ourselves. And lastly, the law lets us know that we need to have a knowledge of sin. It helps us get a knowledge of sin. The law clearly shows us our sin, our sinful nature, its effects. How many of you all, I don't know if this happened to too many of y'all, how many of you all have ever eaten an apple or saw someone eating an apple and then there was a worm in it? Anyone ever seen that happen? A couple times, right? Um, make sure you tell everyone afterwards the store so we don't go there, all right? But what happens with, uh, when that happens is, is when the, when the apple's actually forming, there's, there's a piece of what the worm, what's going to become a worm that's already in there and it grows in a sense, with the apple. It's not like the, the worm found a spot in, or else you'd be able to look at the apple and see where the worm got in there, right? It kind of comes out of, kind of comes out of the apple. And that's a good depiction of our sinful nature. It's not like when you were born, like something came in and made you sinful. Just like that a worm kind of being there when this apple was being formed. Even in your parents' womb. Isn't that amazing? Sin nature. This is a big deal. This is a big problem. We're going to need something amazing to take care of this issue. This look is depressing, but what's the point of it? The Apostle Paul wants us to know that we are completely unable to save ourselves. Completely unable to save ourselves. People are hard-headed. People in this church are hard-headed. I'm hard-headed. So I just wanted to make sure that that's clear, that aside from the Lord, we cannot save ourselves. 
total depravity. One of the doctrines of grace, some of you all might have heard of it, it's called TULIP. It's this acronym that kind of describes it, that kind of gives a nice outline. The first one is total depravity. See, before this grace, this amazing grace of God comes, you have to understand that you are totally depraved. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners and need grace. Can I say that again? We are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we sin because we are sinners. We need grace. And this is when, this is when the news gets better and our church name is put to good use. But God. All the resources sources for salvation are in God alone through his grace. I want to let you all know that grace is not a New Testament thing. You'll hear people say, in the Old Testament you have law, and in the New Testament you have grace. That's a, that's a big oversimplification. There is grace in every single book of the Bible. And I want to tell you all, there's this amazing book that I've been uh, working, working on. It's so, it's so good. It's this, it's this book by a guy named Stephen Lawson. And basically what he does is he points out grace all throughout the scriptures. And I just want to give you all a couple of them. This is not a New Testament thing. This is grace throughout the whole Bible. First one with Adam and Eve. We have the Proto-Evangelion, the first speak of Jesus coming, the first prophecy. Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talks about Jesus crushing Satan. Isn't that amazing? Right away when mankind sinned, God already was showing his grace and planning a way and having a way to him. Right away. Right away. This is the first mention of the gospel, the good news. So you don't even have to go far in the Bible. That's in the third chapter, and you automatically see grace. You can even say the first chapter in terms of where he placed them and how he formed them and how he made them. Grace is throughout. Grace alone is everywhere in the scriptures. Right after Adam and Eve sin against God, what does God do? He promised an offspring that would take care of that sin, that would erase that sin. How gracious is our God? Has a deliverer to take us away from sin. Think about Noah. There was grace with Noah. Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There was a, the world was wicked. It was rampant wickedness. It was terrible. And God was ready to wipe the world out, which because God is a holy God, that can happen. He's the creator. But what does he choose to do? He finds favor in Noah. And that idea, that idea there is that God in his grace saved Noah. And through that, saved all of us, right? Saved mankind. That's grace. God chose to save his family from destruction. That's grace. Think about Moses in Exodus 4.11. But it says, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You see, Moses was flawed. He didn't think he had the ability. He, in the beginning, was worrisome and, and, and not confident in what God can do. 
but we know that God used him and chose him anyway and empowered him with his grace, his unmerited favor, so that he was able to be used mightily of the Lord and to deliver his people through them. God choosing these characters who aren't the best is in his grace and what he does through them. I know it's, sometimes it's kind of easy to think like, I, I, you know, sometimes you look at certain people in, the, in, in Christianity or certain people maybe even in this church or certain, you know, Christian speakers, and you can say something like, oh, I know why God saved them. Like, they're just, you know, they're just so good at speaking. Look at the way they dress. Like, they just got the it factor. I can see why God chose them. But we see in the scriptures that God chose some people who might fit in that category. You might think that. But we see that God in his grace Choosing anyone is an amazing act. It's an act that he's worthy to be praised for. Whether you think someone had something to like give to God, which is ludicrous, or whether you just see someone who was the, you know, they have a testimony, and when it's time for them to tell their testimony, you need two hours because they got a hundred, they got a one hour and 50 minutes of some sin to tell you how crazy things were, right? You guys have seen those testimonies. But God chooses. God chooses who to save. It is his unmerited favor in getting these people where they are. Galatians 2, 20 through 21 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What does Paul say? What does Paul say? He says, I was crucified with Christ. He sees the grace of the cross. What else does he say? He says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ in me. We We couldn't do anything to save ourselves, but what does Christ do? He dies on the cross, and then he comes to live in you. He comes to dwell in you. And in a sense, your righteous deeds are empowered by Jesus' act and the Holy Spirit's within you. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And we see the connection between faith and grace there. So now as you're living and you're doing what you're doing, it's faith in what God did. His unmerited work, his, his, his work that was in your favor, that wasn't merited. It says, who loved me and gave himself for me. God did this. God does this. This is the story for every believer. He does that. And then Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. When you understand what God has done, it's a natural impulse to be obedient. It's not a natural impulse to think that through your obedience you can, in a sense, pay God back. Or you can be righteous on your own merits now. No, when someone becomes a believer, what do they, what do they come to the saving knowledge of? That I cannot save myself. So even as a believer, right now, everyone, you cannot save yourself. So this idea, when you got saved, you were justified. But now we know we're being sanctified, right? We're becoming more and more like Christ. Guess what? You still can't do that by yourself. God's grace is still working on your behalf. 
That's what Paul is talking about here. I can't start doing righteous deeds now to try to make myself more like God. God's working those in me already, and I'm acting on his grace in my life. You know, when you think about the Lord, what does that, what does that swell up in you? And what it should swell up is a love for him. And we know we love him by keeping his commandments. Not that that makes us saved. He's already saved us. But because he saved us, we can keep his commandments. Praise God. I wanted to go through what's called the doctrines of grace. We've talked a little bit about this. And the ideas here are ideas of what does this actual, how does this grace actually function? Well, one of them is this idea of unconditional election. God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that inclines him to save us. We kind of talked about this. God doesn't save us because of something with us. God saves us because of God. He chooses who he's going to save. God elects based on his sovereign decision to save whoever he is pleased to save. In the scriptures, we see People chosen or set apart for God. We even see a, a people, the Jewish people, we see them set apart for God himself. God chooses. And a lot of times when people hear that idea of God choosing, they say, well, that's not, that's not gracious. Well, a lot of us confuse grace with equality, everyone getting the same thing. Well, if God used that measure, then all of us and none of us would have been chosen. We broke his law. He is nothing like us. So for God to choose any or to even choose one, if he's God and has existed in eternity past, then all of his goodness and all his righteousness, for him to even save one would be the mightiest act. But he chooses a people for himself. There's nothing that the person does to get elected or to get chosen by God. The other one in this doctrine of grace is Limited atonement. The redemption of specific sinners was an eternal plan of God accomplished by the atoning work of Christ. What this means is that God chose who was going to be saved, and he saves them. And so the atonement, in theory, anyone could be saved. But who actually gets saved? The people that respond to, to God's choosing. If you are a believer, it's because God, in his graciousness, has chosen you to believe and has saved you through his son. Next one is irresistible grace. God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Some of us, when we got saved, we, we were so-called happy in our sin. We maybe didn't want to come to God or... It, it, it became like a big change. It became a, like a shocker in a sense. Nobody understands why you became a believer. The Bible tells us that God's grace is irresistible. For those that he has chosen, he will surely secure. He will secure you now and forever. And then the last one is the perseverance of the saints. If you have salvation, that is, if you have a genuine faith in Jesus, and you are in a state of saving grace, you will never lose it. You will never lose it. And if someone so-called loses it, that doesn't really make sense with God's grace. 
If God saves someone, how could they not be saved? How can God saving become unsaved? We're talking about God. So if someone so-called had it and then they lost it, I would argue biblically that they probably never, most likely did not have it. If God saves you, you are saved. This isn't some really, this isn't no teenage lifeguard, okay? This is the God of the universe saving you. So you're saved or you're not saved. And if he saves you and you so-called lose it, you were not saved. Everyone get that? Uh, you know, there's this idea of the backslider. That's, that's different, right? Like someone struggles for a while, they, in a sense, they come back. We're not talking about that. We're talking about if someone, let's say this happens to a lot of kids who grew up in church, right? They grew up in church. They believe. They become believers. But then they walk away, and they never come walk back. And this most likely means that whatever they went through as a young one or whatever, it's so hard to think about that, but and maybe they never were. It's a hard thing. And I don't go around saying that or picking that on people. But just if we think about God's grace and his power, when he saves, guess what happens? The person is saved. And so we stand on that. The person is saved. God's mercy, God's favor goes before the unwilling to make them willing. It follows the willing to make his will effectual. This is a quote from Augustine. What's he saying? He's saying God's mercy, God's favor is what starts someone who's unwilling and doesn't want to believe in Christ and doesn't want to believe in what Jesus' work did, and it makes them willing. God makes people willing to believe in him. And the willing, then it becomes effectual. When God draws someone, they come and then God, in his grace, makes them saved. Sola gratia, grace alone. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you for your grace, for your unmerited, unearned favor on us. Lord, you have done all the work, Lord. You have saved us. You are saving us, Lord, and we know in the end we will be saved. We thank you for the work of your son. We thank you for Jesus coming to the earth, living righteously and on our behalf, dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, Lord. We pray, Lord, that I pray, Lord, that every person in this room would believe that and, and, and come to a saving faith, Lord. Lord, I know there's times we've been, a, we've been around church forever, Lord, but it's just a thing. Lord, I pray it become more than a thing. It may become more than a culture, Lord. It becomes your saving grace enacted on someone who has a real relationship with you, Lord. Lord, I pray for anyone who's struggling with their faith, Lord, that they would go to your word and seek you and that you would speak to them and let them know that you can save and they need to repent of their sin and not trying to do it on their own, Lord. Because we couldn't, we can't do it. We are totally in our sin, through and through. So, Lord, we thank you that you can save. And, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone in here that does not, does not have that relation with you, Lord, that you would have them reach out to someone next nearby. Lord, we pray for your grace and your salvation. 
to lead us into more acts of gentleness, kindness, loving each other, caring for one another. Lord, we pray that your fruits of the spirit of salvation will cause us to act the way our church family should. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewschai.org.